0: Chapter 6, How Faith Brings About Obedience In the first chapter, we asked the question, how does faith bring about obedience in a way that works cannot? We now have a great foundation to answer that question. In faith, we live according to a new reality, an entirely new state of being, in which obedience to God's commands is no longer in tension or conflict with our nature, but an aspect of it. In faith, we stop allowing the thoughts, feelings, and actions of the flesh to dictate what we think about ourselves, for we are no longer in the flesh, but in Christ. Instead, we let the Word of God tell us who we are, despite what we may see and feel in a given moment. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Faith entails much more than believing God loves you, that Christ died for you, and that you are going to heaven. It entails more than just trusting in his good will and the help of the Holy Spirit in you to do better. Faith looks into the unseen realm and takes hold of the new you, which has been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4:24. Faith says confidently, I have died to sin, and been raised to righteousness. It does not say, I need more love, but rather, the love of God is within me. It is not persuaded and stifled by the opposing evidence of the flesh, but instead relentlessly identifies with the new life in Christ, where sin and shame have been conquered forever. Romans 6. Let's apply this to some scripture and bring it to life. Romans 6 begins with the question, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 1. As we discussed in the first chapter, Paul's readers wanted to know how obedience was relevant in the context of God's grace. It seemed to them like it was just a license to sin without fear of punishment. Like many still today, they understood the initial grace in the life of a believer to be the forgiveness of sins and the free gift of eternal life but not much more than that. If this were the case, then it truly would not matter whether a person flees from sin and pursues righteousness, for sin would not at all be opposed to God's saving grace. The more we sin, the more God forgives. No wonder they were offended at the gospel of grace. No wonder they insisted on the practicality of the law to bring about obedience. And no wonder so many Christians today go on sinning like it is nothing. It all comes down to what we believe about grace, or, more specifically, the grace which a person receives initially through faith in Jesus Christ. So, this is what Paul sets out to do. Explain God's grace and how it crucifies sin. Here are some highlighted verses from his response. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 2. We know that our old man was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 6. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 7. For the death Christ died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verses 10-11. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verses 17-18 through 18. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Verse 22 I cannot tell you how many times I read this chapter before I ever understood what was really going on here. For years, my only takeaway was that it is not okay for a Christian to keep sinning. With a slightly condemning tone, even though I knew I wasn't technically condemned, I heard Paul saying, Sin? How could you? After all God has done for you. At times, this led to subtle doubts regarding my salvation. Of course, I would remind myself that I am saved through faith, not works. But then I could not help but wonder whether my faith was even real, given the sin that still remained in my life. Other times, this was just one more chunk of Scripture to put in the stop-sinning bucket, relevant for those who abuse God's grace, but not relevant for me and others who actually want to obey God. In reality, though, Paul is saying something much different and more helpful. As you look again at the verses above, pay close attention to the language Paul uses to describe their condition. Notably, he does not view their freedom from sin as something still to be obtained, but rather something that was accomplished by Christ on the cross and their baptism into his death. It is a finished work. Many Christians have mistaken this freedom from sin, which Paul describes, to mean simply that we now have free will, or the freedom to choose whether or not to sin. There are a number of problems with this view, but most importantly, it misses the obvious point that Paul makes, which is that in Christ, we have died to sin. If this is actually true, then is it even possible to live in it? Further, we have become slaves of God and righteousness. Can we be slaves to righteousness and at the same time free to sin? The language Paul uses here strongly suggests something more than the freedom of choice. In fact, I would argue that it expresses a state which is directly opposed to our general notion of free will. Contrary to popular belief, when Paul says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it, he is not appealing to the heart of the believer, suggesting that if you are grateful for God's grace toward you, you will choose to obey him out of love. As we spoke in the first chapter, this actually just leaves us in a form of works righteousness, continuing to rely on our own willpower to do what is right. Instead, he is appealing to the unseen reality of the believer, suggesting that if you understood correctly what God has done for you in Jesus, you would clearly see how you are unable to continue in sin. Why? Because it is no longer who you are. When Paul says, how... He means literally how. He means that if you have truly died to sin and believe it, it is not possible to continue living in it. What is dead is dead. As it says in 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. To be sure then, our death in Christ, which happened when we first believed, and is marked by our baptism, does not merely result in a turning toward Jesus, but a complete change in our state of being. It is death to our flesh and new life in God. It is freedom from sin and slavery to God. The mechanism that propels the believer toward sanctification is not the will within that person to overcome the flesh and do what is right, but the faith within that person to believe that in Christ, God has crucified the flesh and caused them to be born again as slaves of righteousness, sons of obedience, children of God, etc. From this new identity or state of being, in living by faith that it is true, comes the fruit of sanctification and its end, eternal life. Romans 6.22 Therefore, regarding the initial grace received by every believer, The forgiveness of sins and newness of life, Romans 6, 4, go hand in hand. It is not forgiveness now and then freedom later, or even freedom gradually. It is a package deal when one believes in Jesus Christ and receives His Spirit. By definition of God's grace, one cannot be both forgiven and still enslaved to sin. Therefore, to receive this grace, aware of what one has received, and then to mindfully choose a life of sin believing or hoping that one is still forgiven, is actually to reject this grace entirely. To be born of God and then to willfully choose the old life in the flesh is a complete renunciation of one's status and identity as a child of God. To go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Hebrews 10.26, ought to be a terrifying thing for anyone who understands what they have done. So the gist of Paul's argument in Romans 6 is that grace far exceeds the law in its practicality to bring about righteousness or obedience in the life of a believer. And when grace is properly understood, it gives neither excuse nor power to sin. Now, it is important that we know how to appropriately process and apply what Paul is saying. We have a horrible tendency to subconsciously repackage the Word of God to make sense of what we can see, rather than take it for what it actually means. Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6:2. If you are like me, your natural mind thinks, how can we have died to sin if we are still living in it? Or how can we who live in sin have died to it? Do you see the difference? For Paul, the given is that through Jesus, we have died to sin. Therefore, he determines that we cannot continue living in it. Not that we shall not, but that we cannot. But according to our natural minds, the given is that we still find ourselves sinning, so we determine that we must not yet have fully died to sin, despite the gospel telling us otherwise. If what I just said does not yet make sense to you, I urge you to read it again until it does. It is very important. Paul's eyes are on Christ, His finished work, and our new life in Him. Ours are on ourselves, the unfinished work, and our old life in the flesh. Maybe it is time that we take Paul's lead and learn to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5.7 Identity Drives Actions It is a fact of human life, and well-researched in the field of psychology, that our sense of identity drives our actions. What we believe about ourselves in terms of our inward being is the driving force of our outward doing. Here lies much of the power of the gospel. To be clear, this is far more than the power of positive thinking, and it is much different from the sort of philosophy which says we can forge our own identity or recreate ourselves. The Christian is not a self-made man, nor a product of humanistic optimism rather god has caused us to be reborn literally through the death and resurrection of jesus christ no longer in the flesh but in the spirit not of natural descent but of god john 1:13 it is not simply that he has convinced our old self to follow him and love him but that the old has passed away the new has come second corinthians 5:17 we have been given a new life a new identity a new nature altogether. And for this to translate to our daily lives, we must first begin to see ourselves in this new light. If liquid water thought itself to be ice, it would not freely move about. If steam thought itself to be liquid water, it would never rise from its place. But each knowing the truth about their current state without question, they obey the properties of that state as if there were no choice at all. The same goes for people. We obey the properties of whichever state we believe we are in. If a person grows up thinking they are intellectually impaired, they will exert far less effort into learning than if they believed they were capable of learning anything. If someone is convinced they are unhealthy, not just as a temporary state, but as this type of person, it will be nearly impossible for them to establish a routinely healthy lifestyle. They may be able to go against the grain of their identity for a while, but unless they begin to identify as a healthy person, the new lifestyle will not be sustainable. If a child is taught they are rotten, all their desires to be otherwise will be overshadowed and overpowered by the seemingly inescapable identity to which they have been subjected. Should I be kind and obedient today, they will think to themselves? It sounds nice to stay out of trouble and make some friends. But unfortunately, that is too hard for me. That is just not the kind of child I am. This applies to the Christian life as well. Using the example from Romans 6, Christians who mistake God's grace for mere forgiveness and thus think of themselves still as sinners are certain to go on sinning. But those who see God's grace for what it is and thus consider themselves dead to sin, Romans 6.11, as they truly are in Christ, will naturally stop sinning. This is not to say that a true Christian will never sin again. Rather, it is to recognize that when we do, it is not due to a faulty self, but to a false understanding of self. If after sinning we think to ourselves, I must have wanted to do that. There is still something wrong with me. Then we have misidentified ourselves with the flesh, with which we are no longer to identify. See Romans 8, 9. 2 Corinthians 5.16, Colossians 2.11. The truth is, we did not sin because we wanted to, but because we thought we wanted to, nor because we had to, but because we thought we had to. Thus, we were deceived. For Christians, failure to grow and mature in the way of holiness or to obey in any given moment is nothing more than a failure to see or believe who and what we truly are or else it is evidence that they are not born of God. If you are a Christian and you feel condemned by this, or hear me blame you for not having enough faith to be free from sin, then you are missing the point. I am not saying it is your fault. I am saying it is not you. I am not pointing my finger at you. I am pointing you toward Christ. If someone in the flesh and under the law can say, it is no longer I who do it, But sin that dwells within me, Romans 7, 17 and 20. Then how much more can the believer, who is no longer in the flesh, but one with Christ, rightfully dissociate from the sin with which they once identified? In Christ, you are a child of God, made entirely new in his image. How could you be condemned? Satan wants to shame and discourage you for still struggling with sin and not having enough faith to change. But no amount of faith can add to or take away from who you already are in Christ. It can only help you bear the fruit of and live in alignment with the new and true you. Satan's tactic is to get your eyes off of victory and onto your sin because he knows that the only thing standing between you and transformation is the knowledge that you have been transformed. God has done it. You must fight to believe it. Having been born of God, there is now only one way to know yourself truly. Know Jesus truly. One way to see yourself clearly. See Jesus clearly. One way to evaluate your character. Evaluate Jesus' character. One way to measure God's love for you. Measure His love for the Son. For Christ is your new life. See Galatians 2.20, Philippians 1.21, Colossians 3.4. Etc. In this new life, the compulsion to obey and love God arises out of one's sense of being, which has already been won through Christ and therefore can only be received by faith. This is the obedience of faith, Romans one five and sixteen twenty six, which Paul contrasts with the obedience that comes about through one's own striving or willpower. By God's grace, we have been recreated in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 4.24, and this will become increasingly evident in our lives the more we believe it is true. Being versus doing. I have heard many sermons, and even preached some myself, on the topic of being versus doing. The classic scripture for this subject is the story of Martha and Mary, sisters who had Jesus into their home for dinner. See Luke 10.38-42, although there are plenty more. A common takeaway is the importance of spending time being with Jesus, usually pertaining to more contemplative activities like prayer, scripture, worship, or recreation, over and against doing things for Jesus. Most would agree it is not that serving Him is wrong by any means, but that it should not take precedence over sitting at His feet. All mean well who preach this message, but I would propose that it has sometimes done unnecessary harm in the church. Thinking that we are contrasting being and doing, is it possible that we only have spoken of two kinds of doing? The activities may look different outwardly, whether it is prayer or service, but each are still activities, whether we like to admit it or not. For many people, sitting with Jesus feels more like serving Him, and vice versa. Perhaps we feel bad for not serving Jesus enough. Now, after hearing about the importance of being with Him, We feel bad that we are not spending enough time in prayer. Or perhaps we felt prideful for serving Jesus a lot. Now we feel prideful for praying a lot, since we have heard that prayer is more important. Maybe we feel ashamed for our inability to strike the perfect balance between being and doing, or otherwise proud, when we get pretty close. The sad reality is that, for many Christians, all of life has become doing, anxiously striving to please the God that is within them, This is what happens when we reduce being to a specific kind of action, like prayer. Even prayer becomes a work. The goal here should not be to contrast being with doing, for in this, we have turned being into just one more thing to do. Instead, we should get rid of doing altogether, and strive only to be, in accordance with our new nature, since right doing is a natural result of right being. If we understand our new life in God, then every good activity, including both prayer and service, becomes an outflow of our being so that there is no more striving, no more works. So once again, the wonderful freedom of the gospel is found first in knowing who and what we are. This is the true meaning of the rest for which we are to strive. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works. Hebrews 4.10 A friend of mine once admitted that it was hard to comprehend how, in life after death, we would not want to sin anymore. But all one needs to do is to consider how it is that God never sins. It is quite simple. Sin is not in His nature. See 1 John 3.5 In other words, God cannot do what God isn't. Or else consider how earthly creatures never sin. From the birds of the air to the fish of the sea, there is no doing which conflicts with their true being. Just the same, there will be a day when Jesus returns to transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, Philippians 3.21, and we will become partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, freed forever from the corruption of our flesh, which currently wages war against our souls. In the meantime, We must learn to live through Jesus, who has already overcome sin in the flesh and has put on this new nature for us. He is our new being, both in person and nature, and we abide in Him through faith. Christ did not die to change our doing. He died to change our being. He did not die to redeem our behavior. He died to redeem our nature. He did not die just so that we would love Him, He died so that we would become love as He is love. He did not die for us to remain in the impossibly constant tension between sitting at His feet and serving Him. He died so that there would no longer be a distinction between the two. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Abiding in Christ. This is how the church remains in the sort of works-righteousness mindset that we talked about in the first chapter. We have reduced the things which we already are, by God's doing, into things that we must ourselves do, but can never actually accomplish. Take, for example, the idea of abiding in Christ. See John 15, 1-17. How is it that you have been taught to do this? Personally, I always thought that to abide in Christ, I had to be actively thinking about Him, praying, obeying his commands, reflecting on his love for me, etc. How often, then, did I fail to abide in him? For even when I perceived that I was successful in this matter, it was by my own works, by which no one is united with him. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Romans 11.18 The only way one truly abides in the vine is by trusting that one has already been grafted in through faith. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Romans 11.20 It is not we who connect ourselves to Christ, but Christ who has connected us to himself. By grace alone, in Christ is our ongoing state. Therefore, we abide by simply believing it is true. If you have yet to be convinced, perhaps the Greek will bring the point home. The Greek word translated as abide in John 15 is meno, which means specifically to remain or stay. This being the case, we might ask, what sense would it make to tell someone to remain where they are not? When someone says they have chosen to remain at their job, it is a given that they are speaking of a job they currently have. When a parent tells their child to stay at home, we assume that the child is already at home or otherwise will be at home whenever this command becomes relevant. In the same way, Christ's instruction to remain or stay in Him should indicate to believers that we are already there. Christ never commanded us to get into Him, but to stay where He has put us by the same means that we got there, faith. The same logic applies to many ideas with which we are familiar. For instance, in the same way that we abide in Christ through faith— we walk by the Spirit through faith. Galatians 5.16 There is nothing anyone can do, by an act of their own will, to get into the Spirit. As children of God, all believers are in and of the Spirit, by status or by nature. Therefore, to walk by the Spirit is to live in alignment with our true state of being, which happens naturally when we see ourselves clearly. This is what Paul means when he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5.15 In other words, he is saying, Let us act according to who we truly are. Or how about all this talk of dying to ourselves? Have we not yet learned that we are already dead and that Christ is our new life? Once again, there is nothing anyone can do by an act of their own will to die to themselves, except to hand themselves over to Christ, at which point they die completely, immediately, and literally. We progressively die to sin by considering ourselves entirely dead to sin. See Romans 6.11. We crucify the passions of the flesh by believing that those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Galatians 5.24. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8.4 by believing that we are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Romans 8, 9. If we want to experience the fruit of the Spirit, which can be summed up in love, we must stop trying to do that which we already are, and we must begin to see ourselves as truly one with Him. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 2 Corinthians five fourteen. I have heard some people screaming since the first chapter. Grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. It is a catchy phrase, but it's not always true. Grace is opposed to effort when the effort we put forth is to obtain the things freely given us by God, 1 Corinthians 2.12, as if we did not already have them, not the least of which is our righteousness and sanctification. Perhaps some think that the way I speak about faith diminishes the responsibility of the believer to respond to God's call with serious personal devotion. But given what I have written thus far, it should be clear that I have no intention to absolve the believer of responsibility for their spiritual growth. On the contrary, my aim is to equip believers with the knowledge of how the gospel actually works to bring about spiritual growth so that there no longer remains an excuse for lukewarm Christianity. To be clear we should not be opposed to effort. See Second Peter 1, 5-10. But the reader should see by now that effort is a product of genuine faith, not the other way around. See 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. It is not the means to obedience, rather it is obedience, which is brought about through faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work. The only striving we must do is the striving to believe, given that we have an adequate understanding of His grace.